Hi everyone, good evening. Thank you all for coming. I'm really delighted to welcome Damien Wolford Davies here today. It's the second time you've read at the festival in my time, but this evening we're going to hear Damien read from Judas, and we'll start with your reading and then have a chat. Great. Thank, Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Chloe. Chloe suggested that I read for about 20, 25 minutes and then um, we'll have a chat about excavating some of these um, poems, and I have to say that Chloe sent me some really insightful questions which sent me back anew to these and defamiliarised them for me which is always the mark of a great question so thanks for that already <laughs> um, I'll start by reading out the epigraph page really of, of Judas which is a biography if you like um, take that as you, as you will and I'm still not sure in what sense that it is a biography of Judas um, and the one, two, three, four, five epigraphs here give a sense of different angles of entry into this um, crux, that is, problem, this challenge, that is, Judas, if indeed he existed at all. We may talk about that later. Um, first is from the Gospel of Judas. Um, this is a mid-second century work. Jesus speaks to Judas as follows. You will be cursed by the other generations, and you will come to rule over them. Lift up your eyes and look at the cloud and the light within it and the stars surrounding it. The star that leads the way is your star. Then, from 1857, Thomas de Quincey's essay, Judas Iscariot. In saying that the viscera of Iscariot, or his middle, had burst and gushed out, the original reporter meant simply that his heart had broke. Um... Aaron Dwight Baldwin, The Gospel of Judas Iscariot, 1902. Judas this time speaks to Jesus. I am surely, sorry, Judas says of Jesus, I am surely his familiar friend. I am surely his familiar friend. 1912, The Diary of Judas Iscariot uh, by George A. Page. Men shall bless me because I had boldness and was not afraid, but went right onward and did this thing. I went right onward and did this thing. And then, finally, from Brendan Kennelly's The Book of Judas, 1991, describing Judas as just another ordinary, appalled man. So the first poem, Valley. I know my scripture. This tomb-pocked waddies where we're one day meant to jostle. Bones and tatty sinews, Jew and Gentile, out of judgment. Those just trust, aloe-sweetened bodies stiffening in the rock, will steal a march on all of us. I'm just a shadow lengthening in this thistled riverbed, expecting nothing but the sun to dip behind the bluff cubes of a city, no differently from yesterday. Denominations. You'll paint me gross, gripping my shins, retching silver coins. Let me put you straight. All I've got's loose change for late-night cofter stands outside the Lion's Gate, where tote-bag tourists sip tart tamarind from paper cups. On Friday night I saw the city wane and wax to pixels, on the screens of untold mobile phones. From unbuilt minarets, muezzins hoist the pale Passover moon above the gospel of the separation war. Gnosis. You can't know red until you see the shock of lamb's blood on the gold stones of the temple court. Or phony till you clock two women kissing air above each other's shoulders in the lobby of the Sheraton. Fear, until you watch a teenage soldier realise he's big enough to drive a nail through wrists and heels. Or joy, until you see the downtown mural of that oozy-toting trooper frisked by girls. Or lies, until you've heard me out. Siloam Pool. With each new body sliding in, the water overflows the topmost step, then finds its level. 
Small tarns of overspill evaporate to bedrock on the sides. I'm trying to forget my flesh. The only sound, the lapping of the basin's fickle tide. Below the spring, dishes point to Mecca. Let me wash. I'll come clean and meet you in a bar in Ben Yehuda Street. We'll talk about the elephant in the room. This one's called Annunciation One, and it picks up on the suggestion that has been offered by some historians as a kind of explanation for the word Iscariot. Nobody knows quite what this Judas Iscariot actually means. Some people think it means Iscariot or Iscariot, both are possible, the man from Cariot, uh, a version that no longer exists. Well, some people believe that Iscariot encodes or embeds the word Sicarius, which is the Latin name for a small dagger. And hence they believe that it's possible that he was a member of the Sicarii, which was a Jewish assassination squad, um, tasked with or self-tasked to uh, kill off various high-profile members of the Roman occupation and Jewish collaborators. So this toys with that idea. Annunciation 1. It was an August Shabbat. I was 26. Like broken legs, our flails hung in the threshing room, air wheaten, muzzy. I was watching two grey butcher birds impale a brace of bees on thistle thorns. No parable. Leaching from the idle olive press, a shadow kinked across the grass. I know you love enough, it said. I'll teach you how to hit and run. Contract. A good kills clean, without collateral. Target down before he even feels the knife. I learned to be anonymous. Another body in a surging crowd. Shrill owl cry from beyond the date palms. Silence when the nervy soldiers halt. At spendthrift galas, others gawked at golden surplices, sharp suits. I was drilled to see the hidden artery. One thrust, if deep, brings out a dazzling arc of blood. In vino. No depth, no heft, no body. This bottles from the Hebron outposts where the vine stocks still too young. What's spilt? Dries fast in darkening crescents on our coasters, stamped with David's star. You think I'm stalling, buying time. We'll go the long way round, past Yad Vashem. I'll wait outside. Go see the gallery of ghetto faces in the boxcar, cheek to cheek like Tishby grapes. This is Annunciation 2, and it's the first time this Judas meets somebody who seems to be Jesus, Christ, to us. At this point, of course, Judas doesn't know him. At this point in the, in the narrative as well, Judas is, in, is holed up in a kind of um, inner-city safe house in Jerusalem. Pinch out all the lamps. I want to raise him in the dark. It was the morning after the Ramler job. I'd bodged it. Cock-eyed lunge, my rash stab out of true. I drowned it all in moonshine, woke in backstreet Meerschirim to find the city liverish. Damascene? Don't make me. Thugged, I fathomed out a torso, blotting out the sun. Stand and sober up, he said. You stink. Dog. I lashed out, lost him in the steam from laundromats where Zonenfeld meets Reichmann in a crux. You'll say, how very noir. That day he dogged me, chronic, beggars quetching for my coins held out his hands. He was the shyster hawking job lots, 
the kid who sold me borscht. Listing queasy in the barber's chair, I saw him flash across the mirror's face. Scouting. Two miles on past Jacob's well, I fell among kibbutzniks camped out in an orange grove. They had me stoned by midnight, staring at the moonlit mirror balls of fruit. Then him again, crouching at the centre of our circle, madly fretting wood for one immaculate ember. At last the tinder took. Through swirls of citrus smoke, I watched him cradle bleeding palms. Peripheral. And at this point, Judas has reached um, the Sea of Galilee, where he's joining um, Jesus in his ministry, if sceptically. I learned a loose routine, filled out, found 13 shades of autumn in a lengthening beard. I bluffed the fishers' patter, parroted their burr and drawl. In baskets on the jetties, silver slabs of muscle twitched and flexed. They weighed the earth. He happened always at the edges of the coming into focus like rocks and rippling through a dying wake. Each handshake left you with scale-spangled skin. Query. Who do you say I am? He posed, apropos of nothing, his gutting knife poised at the rude gash of a gill. I'd rolled the same old smooth replies. I was tugging free the lewd slug of a lither. Who do you say you are? I asked. He resumed the knife's intimate intifada, its flashing hack and slash, a retort of sorts. Magdalene. Well, she was a piece of work. Deft where they were brute, harp string taut against their oafishness. She pulsed on frequencies beyond their range. He tuned himself to her, but feared his body's rough reply. I'd prickle hours before she came in range, kept my distance, knowing she'd be tart, a bitter medlar on the tongue. Like. Branched sage was blooming yellow on the wayside, and here's me telling him, spare me the eternal similes. Like seed, like nets, like this man, like another, like a child. This is worse than dark. Tell it like it is. He stopped. That maddening smile again. He said, the kingdom is and tapped a finger on my chest. The scent of sage was like a song. Part of the um, challenge I set myself with this work was to defamiliarize the gospel stories. Challenging, somewhat dangerous thing to do in some ways. Um, by telling them obliquely, by telling them at an angle, from an angle, from another's perspective. So here's one that you may recognise. Puppet. Their timing was impeccable. He'd botched a spiel on love, failed to find the figure that would salvage it, and suddenly the air was thick with braids of straw. The sun blazed in and was eclipsed. We watched a body drop in stuttered phrases to his feet, rope skeins thrashing down in helixes. He raised it by the armpits, made it dance a jig among the pricking stalks. Twitching. See, the swifts are back. Black devils locked in dogfights, shadows screamed on stone. They say they never leave us, 
that they sleep in pools. Have you noticed how the sunbirds start up only when the echo of the call to prayer gives up the ghost? Or how a crow drops stones in cisterns till the water rises to its flickering black tongue? Forgive these trifling nature notes. Ferai Naturai, city of cats, eyeless, crooked, scarred, all born survivors. I'll take the hint, fight, fake buckled limbs, scratch skin red raw, live in grungy colonies in courtyards, rank with refuse sluiced out from the souks, one eye peeled for tomcats sniffing round my pissing ground. I could hump a living from these streets, yowl to other outposts from the floodlit ashlar of the wall. Draft. Easy now. Marking time in Hover Square, sweating out the juice from last night's jag in Tel Aviv. Teen conscripts lounge against the limes, Buzz-cut scalps, red raw as nutmeg, dance tunes banging in the skull, eyes trailing high-pitched hemlines, pigeons' patterns like Haredi curls, their fingers growing callous on the safety catch. Rhetoric. Little Babylon, he called those tumbling hillside gardens of the temple priests. Oases struck from po-faced rock, as if by Aaron's rod. He'd riff on Nebuchadnezzar's terrors in the marble rooms, serpents in the ritzy colonnades. Words, 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 I'd tell him when he came off stage. Just words, 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 just words, just words. Here's another of Jesus' miracles that may or may not be clear to you at the end of it, and if it's not, that's part of the point. Jay wept. What happened in the grave throat quite depends. I saw him flail and punch the rock face, but the dark was plush, and I was hardly ringside. He bayed his grief, trading echoes with the walls. It seemed the dead man was awake and howling too. The best seats say he bent to parse the lattice of the linen face, sucking up the smack of myrrh, mulled now with perished flesh. And then we all agree, the crooning of a lullaby. Anointing. It would have fetched a ransom. But he let her smash the alabaster jar and daub him till his hair was sleek, the whole house rash with musk. All I smelt was ready cash dispersing from his oil-slick flesh. When she bent to smear his feet, I lost it, slapped the potsherd from her hand. He shot up, shimmering. Foreheads locked, we sinked our breath. It was kissing, almost. I think I was the first to break. And the last one I'll read in this first part, called Garden. He was leaning on the muscled torso of a tree, eyes soldered to the moonlit tesserae of tombs two hundred yards away. The plot was offering up its scents. I remember acid spearmint, sour rue, and basil candy sweet. I whispered, run, the ghost itch of the dagger at my side. Moths flickered near his face, lured by the bitter nectar of his sweat. Thank you very much, Damien. That was lovely to hear those poems. And um, so 
I want to begin by um, just investigating some of the choices you might have been making when you were writing these poems. So I'd just like to ask you where the idea came from to write about Judas. Okay, I've always been fascinated by Judas, um, as I've been fascinated by Lazarus. Um, Judas talk about a man caught in a, in a cleft stick, and I was interested in him as a kind of intellectual problem, as not as a victim, not as a, um, a beast or a, um, a scapegoat, but as also a victim. You know? mm. um, and I was interested in the duality or the paradox that is Judas. Yeah. Um, and so it was an intellectual problem as well as a very human problem, and I find him a terrifying figure in, in many ways. And the fact that over 20 centuries so much has gathered round him and he seems to, interest in Judah seems to spike at various pressure points in history, which I also find interesting because a lot of my poetry has to do with excavating historical terror, for want of a, a less yes. dramatic way of putting it. You know, which was about the witch trials. So, you know, those moments of, um, of communal, if you like, um, confusion and terror. Um, mm. And I like to get inside those through the dramatic monologue, which, which Judas is as well. But whereas which was a, um, a profile of a community with multiple voices, for this one I wanted to home in and offer a kind of psychological, um, psychoanalytical, but human, I hope, um, biography really. Or, but it's, that always is going to be a counter-biography mm. um, because you're playing off the, the text of texts in the Western tradition. Um, and that's a challenge I also wanted to do. So it wasn't merely Judas, it was the fact that you, I was wrestling with the Gospels too. Yeah, which is risky to do, isn't it? We'd all agree. I must say that if anyone wants to jump in at any point, as we do usually with these sessions, do feel free to ask a question at any point. You don't have to wait for the end if it's relevant, you want to jump in. Um, I think um, it's interesting that you've set it in the modern day as well as in the past. So did you, were you always going to do that, to, to have that weaving throughout the film? That came in as an idea and as a frame um, early on, and of course that 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 was a, a way of freeing the whole thing up and making it not a not a period piece um, yeah. or you know in relegating it to history as it were, but as a way of making Judas eternally relevant. So Judas wanders around first century Jerusalem in, in this book in, in, a, in a, what I call a weird historical stereo, really. Mm. Um, so you'll have noticed how he's, he, from that reading, he'll, he'll clock two women kissing in the Sheraton, you know, air kissing. Mm. And then in the very next line or in the very next poem, he's back to a recognisably first century um, AD yeah. scenario. So that I wanted that to, to destabilise the reader and I wanted the reader to be confused as to place and time and perspective. That's right. I mean, you're even doing it in the poem, aren't you? Because you've got the two, the boys with the hands on the trigger that mm. could knock a nail through a foot, or and it's so it's happening. You know, yeah, it's very deft how it's going that quickly. Between and that, that shuttling was something I really wanted to do. I mean, whether it's managed well enough, I'm, I was always worried about really. But um, that that anachronism, essentially, yeah. and anachronism, of course, works both ways. You can say that something's too modern for a too too yeah too modern for a context or indeed too ancient for a cont for a context. Yeah. So there was a, um, it was a way of making the whole engagement with Judas uncanny, really. Yeah. And I, and I, it makes me think that a lot of the time um, when light appears in the poem, mm. that's what you're doing, because um, there's um, modern scenes where the light feels very old. Mm. So when he's holed up in the safe house mm. and you've got him, the lamp there, is that something you were... Deliberately doing, or did that emerge? No, that's that's well. I'm glad you spotted that. So, um, there's um, you spotted dogs as well. Um, yeah, dogs. <laughs> lots of dogs, lines of dogs, and different kinds of dogs, and different kinds of uh, wildness go throughout. As as is the case with light and, and and dark. So, you move as you rightly said from a city safe house where you have a um, an olive oil uh, lamp with a wick trimmed low. And then in two or three poems after that, you have Judas looking out um, east to see a jet pass and the, the light pulse of the jet. And it's asking us to, to make a link between the city safe house and, and that first century context and the modern context of faith um, mm. or of lack of faith and of intolerance too. So it's, it was very much um, a way of getting into what we're, we're seeing in, on, uh, on the news every day. Yeah, and yeah, that's true. I mean, um, the poems 
did make me think, and I wasn't sure how you would feel about this, about um, ISIS. And there's particularly um, a poem which talks about a, a brain being fashioned a, like a... Can you talk... Do you, you, that's the... Um, that's his, is, his carriage. His carriage, yeah. yeah. Um, I was trying to... Partly one inherits a biography of Judas, doesn't one, from the, from the Gospels and from 20 centuries worth of, of cultural... Um, contributions to that biography if you like um, but of course what I also wanted to do was was create new biographies new back histories for him new um, psychological problems for him mm. in some way to explain but not to explain away the the paradox that we've just been talking about the paradox that is Judas and one piece of his back history that I wanted to fill in or suggest was the fact that his mother was working out in the fields and he was, he's been brought up in that very, very difficult, harsh environment where, as I say, the slights of fat men mm. have been visited on his family. You know, they've been enslaved in some way on the land. And I've described that, as you say, as um, marking him in such a way psychologically as a rope chafes into the lip of a well yeah. and marks a runnel. But the runnel, of course, is, is, is a wound of a, a of a certain kind, yeah. but it's also beautiful and smooth, and it's mm. a mark of work and and, and life. Mm. But yeah, but it's about Judas at that moment not thinking straight, thinking along a track. Um, that bitter runnel in the brain that he certainly tries to jolt himself out of in a, a number of instances, but actually can't quite. So he's enslaved to his own anger yeah. and frustration. So often, he does jolt himself out and swerve him out of. His fatedness, really, because if there's a fated character, it's Judas, I guess, isn't it? I mean, you know, the the, the, necess the, the demon who betrayed Christ, but yet the necessary agent of salvation. Um, why he's so demonized, <laughs> you know. Um, of course, in, in other um, branches of Christianity or in other community, faith communities, he's venerated as a saint. Um, and in the second century AD Gospel of Judas, from, one, from which one of the epigraphs came, He's the only disciple, this is a Gnostic gospel, so it represents the, the, the thinking of an early sect of Christianity. Um, he represents the only disciple who understood fully Christ's mission mm. and who understood fully that Christ needed to die. Um, and the Gnostics' um, scepticism of the flesh, of course, and so dying was a way of escaping the flesh. And so the, he, far from being the demonised Disciple, he was the only one who had that insight into Christ. Yeah. Um, so there are multifarious representations of Judas, which this also tries to deal with. But what's also interesting is the gravitational pull of the Gospels. Mm. But even in the Gospels, of course, he's represented plurally. You know, he mm. doesn't even die in the same way in the Gospels. Um, yeah. in, in one version, he hangs himself, right. and in the other version, of course, his innards gush out. Well, which is it? <laughs> Could it be both? And is that sort of freeing as you're writing? Because you know that we're all going to know bits of the Gospels or more or yeah. less. Or was that freeing or was that... It was immensely freeing, actually. I think it's very playful. It's meant to be a very playful volume in some ways. And it's all... Whether it's... Um, I don't think... It's comic in places, I hope. But it's not, it's not playful or ludic in a comic way. But in... in by, by deploying ironies. Yeah. So haunting every single representation, any definitive within the compass of an individual poem representation of Judas, or all the other representations of Judas, of course. And mm. so each version of Judas that I give in a single poem is constantly ironised by all of the others, or by the version that you as a reader and as an audience know better. Mm. Um, so are the, is the Judas that one encounters in this volume a kind of second-hand weird creation, or is there a brief flicker of uncanniness where the reader might think, oh, that's what actually happened? Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, it's, it's as you said earlier, it is a dangerous thing to do, and there are multiple sensitivities, as we as we well know from the last two or three years, yeah. with representations of, of faith and of um, figures who have gone deep into people's identities. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, that that was troubling to negotiate as well. But it's, I mean, it's a genuinely, I hope, um, inquiry and excavation. Mm. It's certainly not written from a, from a lack of faith. Right. Um, and it's certainly not written from a position of negativity, but rather, mm. you know, absolute positive engagement with the problem of belief. Really. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I mean, there's um, a sense where 
did you start writing it before you went to Jerusalem? Have you been to Jerusalem a lot before? Right. And that I'm interested in that. Yeah, I'm very interested in, in maps. And, and the day job is an academic job. And I've, um, I've been working, or was working at exactly the same time as I was writing this, on a book about um, maps and literature, really, and carto- mm. literary cartography. Um, which may sound a bit arcane, but it's not, because I think that every every literary work is in some way a map. It's mapping yeah. space, it's mapping place, it's mapping the self. Um, and I don't just mean that as a metaphor. I think you know books are maps that uh, help us orientate ourselves around space, as maps are meant to. And these two things coalesced, really, and I wanted to make this, in a sense, a cartography of Judas as well. So I was considering asking the publisher to include a map as a kind of frontispiece here, or as, as the end um, you know, papers, mapping Judas's journey through Jerusalem throughout these poems. Because when I was writing individual poems, I knew exactly where he was. Right. So he, you could trace him. There's enough there, right. enough geographical hints okay. for, him, for you to plot him around. But of course, in some of them, you'll plot him outside the, the Jerusalem that Judas knew, because he's into Greater Jerusalem, which is the, where's the, the Sheraton or the, the David Hotel, you know. Mm. And I like that idea of getting out of a geography that he himself would have recognised. Um, and so I hadn't been to Jerusalem before writing this, so I thought, um, you know, I, in, a, in an attempt at authenticity, although I don't, I dislike the, the whole idea of having to go to a place, I don't believe that that makes anything authentic. Mm. Um, but I did go. I went in April 2012, and I spent two or three days there, but I had the, um, the horrible flu while I was there. <laughs> so I saw Judas through this amazing kind of uncanny thug, <laughs> which was really helpful. <laughs> um, so a lot of them were, were written there. Right. Um, and that thug really helped because it helped with the uncanniness. And as I was, when I returned to Wales, and I was of course remembering was an act of memory at that point an act of creative mm. replacing myself into these um, spaces in Jerusalem that mist came in um, <laughs> as a tool almost of, yeah. of, of blurring distinctions because nothing I didn't want anything to be shut down here I didn't want anybody to have an answer about Judas here because the worst possible thing is to come up with a dogmatic kind of portrait about Judas who seems to be the ultimate elusive character to me yeah yeah that's right and um, there's a sense in the in the book where you you start to feel he is um, the other side of Jesus that mm. he becomes the sort of dark to the, to the light. But the relationship between the two of them is really interesting because yeah. there's lots of contact physically between them, isn't there? Um, with the tap on the chest, that that kind of frustration with words, which I thought was quite must have been quite fun to play with as a poet to somebody who's. We must believe a lot in the power of words. And in and the power of metaphors as well. Judas, Judas hates Jesus' use of metaphors. Yes, that's um, right. My Judas hates Jesus' parables because they're not, they're not giving him the certainty he needs. Yeah. And of course, you know, so I read as widely as I could in, in first century Palestine, uh, Holy Land history, um, Jewish thought, Christian thought, um, and Jewish uh, religious thought at that time, of course, was was a, a very fluid system, or well, not a system at all in many ways. Different sects, different um, again communities of belief. But of course, what one Jewish um, sector or sect wanted was very much a martial military messiah. Mm. I mean, they they did want an answer to Roman occupation mm. and that frustration of being in, in a colonial predicament. And my Judas plays with that because um, he wants he wants Christ to be a martial deliverer. Yeah. And this Christ ends off talking in tales, in parables, in metaphors, um, not in you know not in in literal messages, not in calls to arms, but rather in elusive terms. And uh, and you're right. There's a there's an irony or not, as the case may be, because we're, what we're reading is Judas through metaphors. Yes. Through words, words, words. Yeah. Just words. You know? Yeah. And that's the only way we can get at Judas is through te- texts. Yeah. And words and textuality and history and. Yeah, that's it. And I mean, it gives you a real sense of the time, then and now, both times you're bringing together as extremely violent, isn't there? There's a real. Um, you know, brutality in the poem yeah. sometimes. Was that hard to know how to do that, how far to push that? And what was, you know, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, it is a very violent collection. And it it's, it's deals with um, 
the violence of history, really, in many ways. I know that sounds a bit precious and, and expensive, really, but I mean, what, what Judas was, if anything, if indeed he existed at all, which we'll come to in a minute, is he found himself a victim of the violences of history. Yeah. Um, of violences of um, schemes beyond his control. Yeah. And there are petty violences here, of course. There are there's sexual violence here. There are vi- mental violences. Yeah. Um, but I, I find the world in many ways utterly um, terrifying. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, the world outside this door is mm. utterly terrifying. One doesn't have to be in Syria. Yeah. Or Homs, yeah. you know, yeah. where people are experiencing infinitely more violent worlds than yeah. than this. Um, we've got to calibrate that correctly as well. Yeah. But, I, you know, life itself is violent when one starts thinking about it. Life itself is terrifying when one mm. starts thinking about it. Mm. Um, and I guess my Judas thinks too much as well. Right. He's, he's, a, he's a very introspective <laughs> character who, however, craves a simplici- the simplicity of action mm. rather than of thought. The excitement of it almost, because there's mm. the poem where he comes into the temple that, mm. and he's got his... The, oh, Jesus has the whip, doesn't he? And, it, and you can really feel the sort of excitement of, that Judas is experiencing as... Yeah, this is... Um, Jesus in uh, with the money changers in the temple, and and I made um, Jesus come in with a bullwhip, really. Um, so he comes in crashing, and he upsets all the doves in the cages, and the you know the doves uh, with their mangled little uh, feet are are going all over the place. And Judas loves it. Mm. At last, you know, Jesus is doing something. He's, he's moving. You know, wow, isn't that cool? Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of physical violence is what he craves from, from Jesus. And, of course, there is a homoerotic element here. Yes. Um, there, are, there is closeness. Um, they play off in a... There's a triangulation between them and, and Mary Magdalene. Yep. Which is all about temptation, three-way temptation in, in, in some way. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I don't want to sensationalise that, and I keep that at, at bay. Yeah. But it's, it's certainly... I mean, what must it have been like to be a disciple and to be in that close proximity day after day? Yeah. Um, so there's that, and there's, there's great frustration, there's great admiration, um, but also I'm, I'm sure he finds Jesus terrifying. Mm. And, um, one of my favourite um, quotations is one from the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard, where he said, I think it's quoted by R.S. Thomas, which is the route through which I got it, where he said, what must it have been like, and he's speaking of the disciples, what must it have been like to sit down and have lunch with God <laughs> every day? And when you think about it, it's absolutely right. What must it have been like to sit down and have lunch with God? Yeah. yeah. And he is often a shadow in your poems, and that gives him, he's seen reflected as a, that gives him stature, doesn't it? It makes him larger somehow. Indeed. And, and sometimes he's absurd also. Yeah. So, so the, 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 the scale of Jesus changes depending mm. on, on perspective, and I play with perspective. And uh, he seems to be always somebody who appears to Judas peripherally. Mm. Um, I, you know, either oh, there he's over there, or he's oh, I thought he was there, and he he isn't there. Yeah. So he's a ghost haunting Judas throughout, and of course, Judas, my Judas, is always looking at, over his shoulder anyway because he's a hired assassin, yeah, or not as the case may be. Yeah. So he's constantly um, shadowed, yeah, you know, by his role, by Jesus, by those who are out to get him, by the other disciples whom he's not really part of. Yeah, and the things he wants to see happening too, yeah. the kind of desires he has. Yeah. And, but yeah, I mean, I think when you have um, Jesus being covered in oil, it's wonderfully, it does sort of slightly give him this vanity or, or something that's, yeah. uh, it is, the, the very many angles is really something that uh, frees your own imagination as you read it, you know. I was asking myself those questions as I was reading it. What must it have been like, you know, trying to imagine? And Judas, of course, in that, and we, you know, this is not, my Judas, this is the Gospels Judas, um, that moment where uh, Jesus, close to um, the Passion, is anointed, the jar of um, mm. uh, oil, it's very expensive oil, is smeared over him, of course, mm. and he allows himself to be smeared, whereas Judas, the Gospel says, the only thing Judas can think of is the money that that jar mm. would have fetched, yeah. which he could have given to the poor, which is an amazingly principled thing to think at that particular time. But Jesus, you know, <clears> constantly <throat> Jesus swerves the the expectation and says no allow her to do it and all he can see is this slicked body and the, you know, the homoeroticism is also there present very much um, and they almost come to blows which 
are always in this collection very close to kisses. Yes, that's it. Yes, that's it. We never get the actual final. <laughs> the um, that's um. I, I ought to open up to questions. I've got so many to ask, but I must give others the chance. Jim. I, I, I don't want to interrupt you. Please. Which is uh, going very well. But first of all, thank you for reading and really compliment you on your creation of your character, the character of Judas. Thank you. It's very, very, very interesting. You, I, I wanted to make a further observation about Judas. I mean, we're very we're familiar with the Bible story, of course, which, as we know, is managed and edited by the Church Fathers yeah. to to present, in the case of Judas, very convenient, uh, you, you know, embodiment of evil outside. You, yes. you know, we're familiar, we, you know, with areas of belief where evil is out there or where you can get it out there and deal with it and then go and have a drink. Yeah. But um, um, we, you touch upon, you refer to the Gnostic tradition, mm. or other traditions, and um, it is, of course, possible to view the teaching of Jesus as an esoteric mm. teaching. Yes. It's so, so that Jesus is an evolved man, like the Buddha, for example. Mm. And um, in this context, then Judas can be seen as the most evolved. Mm spiritually, mm. of his disciples. Yes. The only one whom Jesus can trust mm. to betray him. You, right. you referred to this. Exactly. To fulfill the drama, as it were. Yeah. And what's more, Judas is the only one capable of self-annihilation. Mm. And self-annihilation, annihilation of self and identity and reputation in perpetuity. Yes. In contrast with Peter, mm. who denies exactly. his yeah. Yeah. Uh, master, and yet is the rock uh, upon which the church is founded. Yeah. So, so that you, you, as you can see, I've been preoccupied with this view, which is in contrast, although I like etymologically the idea of the Sicarius. Yes, exactly. Um, but it's it's nice that it floats mm. in the unknown. Mm. That's choose. very eloquently said. I agree with all of that. And the the Gnostic um, Christ and the Gnostic. Uh, Judas is something that I flirt with here as well as the yeah. Sicarius. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Again, it, it, the Gnostic Judas can also be seen as in some way a victim. Um, the man who had to self-immolate um, for the master, as it were. So even within that tradition, there are paradoxes that accrue around Judas. The historical view of Judas is that he didn't exist at all. Um, the the orthodox and of course it's, this is a collection that sees orthodoxy as a very complex thing as a political thing um, you know the the canonized gospels are canonized by a group of men um, out of a, a number of um, texts most of which have been lost to us and these this is the tradition that has become enshrined as canon um, but yeah, I mean, the, the idea of the canonical is, again, something that this sets its face against, whilst accepting it at, at certain, in certain swathes, um, because that's what we have, as it were. But what it also does, I hope, is lull people into a false sense of security that I am writing parallel to or within the gospel stories, only then to jolt the story out of it, and only then to re-enter it, as it were. Um, I mean, my, my own um, faith, I think, my own faith has certainly changed from and through writing this. Um, I was brought up as a uh, Welsh non-conformist congregationalist. My father was a congregationalist, my mother was a Baptist um, in the Welsh non-conformist tradition. I was baptised into the church in Wales, so I changed to be an Anglican. How much of a change that is, <laughs> we, we debate. Um, and how much, uh, you know, what's, what are the differences between the Church in Wales and the Anglican Church in England, for example? We can debate that as well. Um, my faith has also changed through reading, I mentioned it already, R.S. Thomas, mm. and teaching R.S. Thomas, um, and arriving at a, his arriving, Thomas's arriving at a, a kind of post Christian perspective on things, really, whatever post Christian means. Um, how has this changed things for me? I no longer subscribe unequivocally to the notion of personal God, for example, um, through the research I did for this. And I think you, you 
you raised the issue of research when we were talking yeah. about this. So there's a lot of reading in history, there's a lot of reading in theology, a lot of reading in philosophy for this. And it did change my view of, of, um, of my own conception of my own relationship with Christian belief. So, so by personal God, what do you mean? Um, a God who is accessible um, to the single believer, the individual believer, oh. um, in, in a recognisably personal relationship. Like that we could conceive of almost. Yes. In, as in, yeah. yeah. And I think that for me, God is exactly that which can't be known. Mm. Is exact is it is the definition of what can't be known. Yeah. Um, which is a space of negativity in some ways, but also a space of possibility. Yes. And that's what the miracles are doing in the book. Yeah. For me anyway. Mm. They see the miracles are really wonderfully done that they seem to happen at the edges of the poem, whereas in the middle there's very little seems to be happening and there's this and they do somehow cap they're very mysterious. You know. The the one I enjoyed doing most was the, was the raising of Lazarus where Judas is too far back to see what, actually what goes yeah. on whereas Jesus is performing in the ringside so there's a metaphor of the boxing match really um, you know the shortest verse in the Bible Jesus wept um, but I entitle it Jay wept so it's Judas wept as well you know how close is, are the two Jays to each other but Judas can't actually see what's going on in the tomb is, Ju- is Jesus playing around is he the showman there's a lot of the showman about this Jesus, mm. as Judas sees him at least. Um, and those who are closest to him, those who are ringside as it were, say that they saw Judas, uh, Jesus coming down to the linen face of Lazarus and, bre- and breathing on him, breathing. But Judas says he didn't see it. Mm. You know? So it's about what can't be seen, it's about what can't be grasped definitively. And you're right, it's about the edge work. Of, mm-hmm. of the miracles because mm-hmm. for some people of course the miracles always happened at the edges of the eye you know they were always eccentric if you like to, to the miracle somebody was always looking the other way when the miracle happened and this is about those but that perspective it's not it's not confronting the miracles head on mm-hmm. it's about recognising that we live in a world where those intersections of the timeless with time or whatever the, the intersections of the miraculous with, with time for some people happen when their head is turned mm. and it is all the more fascinating for that I think. Mm. So. Yeah. May I, may I yeah. ask you a little bit more about this question of whether Judas existed you mentioned it rather in passing that mm. the historical view is that he didn't Yeah. well if you begin to chip away at that mm. and you've just said maybe there's no personal God in which case who, who was Jesus talking to mm. on the cross and at other times mm. is it possible to view Judas in the context of your poems mm. as simply a necessary part of a necessary story. Yes. Um, the again, you know, the, the orthodox historical view, again, whatever that means, but um, the, the balance of written um, engagement with the, with the issue of the historicity of Judas is that he was the necessary political invention of a young Christian faith that wanted to put clear blue water between itself and its Jewish roots. Oh. So it's the ultimate scapegoat, political scapegoat story, really. Um, again, which, which doesn't, um, to me, which doesn't sweep the issue of Judas aside, but rather crystallises it even more. Um, the fact that we say that, we, we, some of us may accept that Judas didn't, didn't exist, doesn't make him any less interesting as a creation, because he is a creation, because he's a necessary creation of a faith that found itself needing to bolster itself in crisis, if you like, under the threat of proscription and violence. And, um, you know, it's a, a very harried young faith that creates this, this being. Um, and, the, and the Bible is, it lives as a story, doesn't yes. it? And uh, Judas wouldn't have continued to be such an important part of the story if he wasn't vital to the story. I mean, to mm-hmm. me, the historicity is... A, is Slightly, um, it's a slightly important issue, yeah. because um, it's what the what those stories mean to us now, mm. and that I I think it's I think it's a fascinating subject to write about. I'm interested when you said that you, you through writing you changed your view of uh, a personal God. Mm. I'm wondering whether did you also change your view of Jesus? 
I did. Um, and I, w- I was trying to imagine myself into that space. What must it have been like to be near that person for whom there is ample historical evidence, of course. Unlike um, Judas, there is ample historical evidence for, for Peter as well. Ample um, excavated evidence for, for Peter. Um, though not for the other disciples. Yes, it did swerve my um, conception of my own relationship with, with that figure. Um, in what direction I'm still coming to terms with, really. Um, I think he was a man who was full of terror. I would have found him absolutely terrifying to be near. Um, and so the, the Kierkegaard's question, what must it have been like, is one that I've thought about a lot, really. Um, and that space, that kind of gravitational field around that being, even if one doesn't believe in him as in some way divine, let's say he's one's a Unitarian, believes that he's an inspired man but not the son of God, still there would have been a terror, surely, an energy, a crackling energy around him. Um, and Judas, this Judas, my Judas, um, there's a phrase, my Judas, you know, <laughs> is, is constantly, he doesn't arrive at a definitive, um, he doesn't crystallise into a definitive relationship with, with Jesus here. He doesn't know what to, what to make of him. So Brendan Kennelly's just another ordinary, appalled man. Is, is, if, if, if the collection ends anywhere, it, it ends with that description of him still viable. You know, he's just another ordinary, appalled man who's confused who's absolutely confused by what we may call Jesus, but what we also may call history and his role in it. Because he's very, um, you know, he, because he can see... He, the Arab-Israeli war for Judas is as familiar to him as the relationship between Jews and, and the occupying, occupying Romans here. So he knows, if you like, the logic runs, he knows what we have made of Judas... Because he's got these long perspectives, he knows what will happen to him in the history of Christianity. So he's battling back or answering in this volume us. He's trying to write back against 20 centuries of representations of him, really, because he knows what will happen in the next 20 centuries. And that puts us in the position of saying, well, if he speaks, and there's only one speaker in this book, which is Judas... He exists, does he? Well, he exists as a fiction in this book. He, you know, he, he exists for as long as one reads this book. But he's still a disembodied voice in some ways. And nobody else, there are no other authorial voices here saying, I spoke to Judas. We only have his word for it, which is why I chose the dramatic monologue for it. You know, there's only one speaker here. Um, and nobody else corroborates anything he says. It's a space of ambiguity and exactly what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, which emerges out of my own ambiguities. Hmm. So it's, it's, I mean, it's offered as a, from a position of, I hope, absolute um, non-dogma or modesty or um, unknowing, mm-hmm. really, um, and, and terror, really. I think, you know, if I write about anything, it's a, if I tend to return to things, it's about historical terror. And the book does lead lead very sort of subtly and without labouring at all through these terrors, doesn't it? The separation wall, Yad Vashem. Yeah. It's um... yeah. I mean, the, I, I had to get Yad Vashem in there, really. I mean, the Holocaust mm-hmm. Museum, which I didn't manage to get to, really, but um, because it's posited in the book that he does know that he does have these long perspectives, one can hardly not mention. Mm. The Shoah, yeah, um, which which is another historical crisis, another historical agony, you know, yeah. um, of a different kind, certainly. Um, and again, you know, again, it's very very sensitive territory to bring that into the the gospel story in, mm. in some way, and to embed it in some ways in, in Judas's mouth. But of course, you know, in in Nazi Germany, um, in the late nineteen thirties, um, representations of Judas spiked in literature and in film um, as a way of demonising Jews. Um, so he becomes a scapegoat for a whole people there, mm. um, as he was at the beginning in some ways. So that, 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 that obscenity is again something that this wrestles with. So I did want it to be a, a political volume, and I do regard myself as a political poet, um, and I 
I'd probably regard myself as a metaphysical poet rather than a religious poet, just to avoid the sense that you know one crystallizes into a religious position. Um, but yeah, um, I, I'm also aware of sensitivities, mm. um, and I guess a lot of people will be in some ways deeply offended by some parts of this. Mm. Um, until I hope I tell them that it's offered as a deeply exploratory uh, project, yeah. um, rather than in any way, it's quite the opposite of a judgment. Mm. You know? I think that is how I felt about it. Mm. Good, thank you. <laughs> Does anyone have any final questions, or shall we ask uh, Damien to read? Can you read the final? Yes, I think so. Okay. Well, Great. We've got the final four here. So we've reached the, um, the passion, so this, um, this one's called Summary, and it comes immediately after the last one I read, which was the Garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Has anybody been to the Garden of Gethsemane, by the way? It's really small. And I went there, as I said, in April 2012, um, and I phoned my grandmother, who was 90, what is she now, 97 now, so she's 94, 95 at the time, on my mobile, fo fo mobile phone, obviously, from the Garden of Gethsemane. And of course she didn't believe that her grandson was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mm. She, didn't, she couldn't believe that her grandson was standing in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mm. But because for her, of course, the Garden of Gethsemane is in some way a myth. Yeah. Um, but in, for a Baptist non-conformist 94-year-old deeply intelligent woman, it's also, of course, a reality. She, she recognises that. But couldn't quite believe that her grandson was standing in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a very moving moment for me to say that. And the only question she asked, how large is it? Which is really interesting, because it's, it is that Welsh non-conformist tradition of visualising the Holy Land, and of having Gethsemane and Bethels and um, you know, all those names transported to Welsh villages, you know, either as chapel names or the names of villages themselves. I'm sorry, I told you it was a very small story. Uh, summary. I spent the way we hours watching torch flames sicken into day. At six, he stumbled, bound and blinking into no man's light. At eight, two blocks away, the gates rolled back to frame his flayed flesh swaying in the sand. Queer. When they lashed him to the crossbeam, he balanced like a pair of scales. I was close enough to see the matted helix of a strand of hair. Around his streaming shins, Two cats curled lovingly. Corpus. What can I say? I wasn't there. Neither ready to relieve him of the transom's heft at Via Dolorosa station number five, nor standing with his mother on the quarry's scree to watch his wrists spiked expertly between electric nerve and bone and hear him gurgle, drowning in the liquor of his lungs. I could have tracked the trail of blood from here to where the last gob hit the ground. The morning had an air of perfect commonplace. I howled. So silently, I know he heard. Fizz. Early Sunday I went up there, bribed the guards with twists of sherbet, left them laughing at the technicolour of each other's tongues. I found the millstone airtight on the tomb. From a distance, one eye closed, I placed two fingers round the stopgap rock and played at rolling it away. As now I break this soda's seal, turn the bevelled cap to hear the spirit hissing from the black solution's heart. Compline. A desert wind burns in through Hinnom, finds me even in the kennel of this cleft. I've woken hourly, choking on the claggy sand. So help me wrap this raveled cloak around me, tight and total like a shroud. Last night, you say, strange tongues of flame descended on the rump in upstairs rooms. I'll wake a spook, take my pick of compass points, 
brace myself to be the dark conductor of your lightning strikes. Thank you very much, Damien. That was wonderful reading. Thanks, Such a pleasure you. to hear those poems read. Thanks for the invitation. Appreciate it. Well, we'll take a break. Thank you.